Well, last week, Jose covered Revelation chapter 19, which is the second coming of Jesus. What do you do after that? I mean, that's a card act to follow, so to speak, right? Well, this week is Revelation chapter 20. We're going to cover the whole chapter, chapter 20. And it is about the millennium and a bunch of other stuff. We'll get into that uh, in a second. But for those of you that are tracking along with the podcast for next week, Go to a revelationconversation.com and you, not, you don't have one, not two, but three podcasts to get prepared because we're going to do all chapter 21, which is two podcasts, and then the first five verses of chapter 22, and then uh, we will be close to done. Revelation 20, kids, that's like double digits times two. We are deep into the book. But before we get started, um, because we're going to talk about the Millennial Falcon, I brought a toy. And this toy, it's really cool. It lights up if I hit it hard enough. There it goes. I don't know if you can see that. But this is a toy that my wife, Vicky, got several of them from our, my grandkids. And I'm blessed with four grandkids. And it's been fat. This will stop in a second, by the way. Uh, there it goes. So um, my four kids, my four grandkids, completely different response to this ball. My oldest, Patrick, he's four next month. And he sees it as a ball. The fact that there's a butterfly in it, he could care less. It's a ball. What do you do with balls? You kick them, you throw them, you shoot baskets with them. But then Charlotte, she's three. She doesn't care that it's a ball so much. She notices that there's not one, but there's two butterflies in here, and they're pretty, and they have yellow wings, and she goes on and on, and she's just completely fascinated by that. And then there's Nakai. Oh, Nakai, spelled N-A-K-A-I. She's two and a bit. She's feisty. And she loves animals, just loves animals. And she likes to touch animals, which is a problem when we go to the zoo. It's also a problem when we walk down the block because when you see a dog walking down the, the block, Nakai will scream out, touch puppy, touch puppy. And then she wants to go touch the puppy. And when she saw this, she said, touch butterfly, touch butterfly. So she brings it to me and says, Papa, open it. Uh, Nakaya doesn't open. You can't open it. And she looks at it and gives it back to me and says, Papa, open. And she quickly figured out I wasn't going to do that. So she started going to the other adults in the room and get, trying to get everybody to open it. No one would open it. And then she finally, we see her in the corner and she's got this ball. And she's trying to open it by herself. So Nakaya doesn't open. You can't open the ball. You can't touch the butterfly. And that'll have relevance in just a moment. But I have to finish off with my fourth. Can't leave out Amelia Grace. She's just wanting a little bit, and she's teething. So parents, you know where this goes if there's a teething baby, right? Right in the mouth, drools all over it. She doesn't care that it's a ball or a butterfly. She just wants to chew it and drool on it. Um, well, we're in Revelation 20, and again, that'll be relevant in a second. Turn to Revelation 20 in your Bibles, whether, whether they're paper or online or however you want to do that. And we're just going to read the first three verses together, and we'll dig into what this wonderful text means. Revelation 20. Verse 1, and I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He sees the dragon, the ancient serpent, who was the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. And we'll get the second part of that in just a moment. But again, we see John's vision starting with an angel coming down out of heaven. And since we're in 
the 20th chapter, we've seen this before. We, we're getting used to angels coming down out of heaven. It's happened back in chapter 10 and 18, and it, and it marks a new scene. But we, we need to notice, what's the angel doing? The angel has two things, a key to the abyss and a great chain. And I, I don't know about you, but I like that word abyss. It just sounds ominous, and it is. You might recall back in chapter 9 during the fifth trumpet, that the abyss was open, and that's where the demon locust came out of that. And in a second, we're going to see that the abyss is closed and locked for a thousand years. And Grant Osborne, one of the great scholars on this book, defines the abyss real simply. He says the abyss is the prison house of demonic spirits. The prison house of demonic spirits. So what does this angel do? Well, first, he seizes the dragon, and, and I love how John, even though he sees this vision, probably when he was writing it down, he added some, a little bit of editorial comments. And here he tells us 100% certainty who is the dragon. It says the dragon, and he doesn't want us to miss it. This is the ancient serpent, and this is the devil, this is Satan. So there's no doubt. We know who this is. Four different descriptions in one little place. And then second, he binds Satan with a chain must have been a pretty spectacular chain for a thousand years. And there's that word, the thousand years or the millennium. Now, side note, the word millennium's never in the Bible, but that's what this a thousand years has come to be labeled or known as. And for those of you that have studied this book, you know it's challenging. In fact, the scholars call this the second most challenging part of the entire book of Revelation. Chapter 11, about the two witnesses being the most challenging. So my goal today, my goal today is to help you understand a little bit better this difficult passage and give you some con concrete conclusions. See, when you hear it's difficult, some of you go, oh, no. And others, you're going, oh, yes, because you want to know a little bit about these difficult passages. So let's jump into a couple of the questions that come up when we talk about the millennium. First, is it literal or symbolic? Kind of have two choices. My personal opinion is it's symbolic. The reason why most of the numbers in the book of Revelation are symbolic, and I think John just continues with that. And also in the rest of the Bible, a thousand years is often symbolic. Kind of like we said, oh man, I had to wait in line for a million hours or a billion hours or whatever. That's, that's kind of how it's probably being used. But it could be literal, your choice. We're not gonna divide over that. The second bigger question is, are we in the millennium now or is it in the future? You see, there's a camp of belief that the millennium is from the first coming of Jesus to the second coming of Jesus. That might be the right answer. And if that's the case, by definition, it's more than a thousand years, right? But there's another camp that believes, no, we're not in the millennium right now. It's sometime out in the future. And that future millennium could either be literal or symbolic and the questions don't end there this is a challenging passage verse 2 and 3 talks about satan being bound with the chain well when he's bound with the chain is he completely powerless where he can't do anything or is it like a gang leader who's in prison and even though the gang leader's in prison the gang leader still has power with his minions outside of the prison and the gang leader can still wreak havoc amongst the people which is it well we don't know. Uh, we just don't know. So let's keep reading. Revelation chapter 20, verse 4. We'll read the next uh, few verses. I saw thrones on which were seated those 
who have been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who have been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshiped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Verse five, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So we, we get a little bit more information about the millennium. There's people ruling, ruling. They have authority to rule. And the question is, is who, who are they? Who's seated on the thrones? We know they have authority to judge but we've got some choices. It could be the 24 elders back from chapter four in that throne room scene. It could be the martyrs, the ones who are killed for their faith in Jesus. Or it could be all believers together. And then there's another question in verse four and five. It says, they came to life. What does that mean? John calls it the first resurrection. But is this a spiritual resurrection? or a physical resurrection. If it's a spiritual resurrection, it could be referring to the time we said yes to Jesus and we became a believer and we are in, in, uh, with the Holy Spirit and we are spiritually resurrected, so to speak. Or it could refer to a bodily resurrection after our current body dies and Jesus comes back and we're resurrected in a new body. It could refer to that. So what do we do? What do we do? When we read the scriptures and we have so many questions in just six verses, and there's not a whole lot of background about the millennium anywhere else in the Bible. Well, the word of the day is humility. Humility. We have to be humble. We have to admit that there's things we just don't know. Like Nikai, you have to be humble and say, you can't touch the butterfly. And there's things we don't know about this butterfly. I haven't opened it up. I'd get all wet because there's all this liquid in it, right? I don't know if those wings are hard or soft. I don't know if the thing's flexible or brittle. There's things I don't know. There's things that we don't know about the millennium. But here's what we need to do when we've come across things that are challenging in the scriptures or any other facet of life. We need to know what we don't know. We need to know what we don't know. No, in this case, we can't know with certainty when the millennium is. Is it now or in the future? We don't know the extent of Satan's binding. Is it partial or complete? We, we don't know if this resurrection, this first resurrection, is spiritual or physical, or, or maybe both. But that doesn't mean we just throw up our hands and go, ah, we don't know anything. This is worthless. No, it's in the Bible. It's not worthless. It's there for a reason, Right. So there's things we don't know in humility. We can't touch the butterfly, but there are things we can observe and say, but I can see this and I can see this and I can see this with certainty. So what do we know that we know for sure? Well, I came up with three bullet points that I know virtually every scholar that's written about the book of Revelation would agree with, and I think you will agree with them as well as soon as you see them, at least I hope so. Uh, the first one is this. Satan is always subject to God's authority. Always, 100%, God never, never is under Satan's authority. Satan's always, always under God's authority. Before the millennium, during the millennium, after the millennium. 
Believer in Jesus, this is encouraging. God is God Almighty, King of kings, Lord of lords. Second, unbelievers, and by that I mean people who have rejected Jesus, people who have said, no, I don't believe you are the son of God, Jesus. People who have chosen to follow the beast. People who have said, give me the mark of the beast. I like this. I like that world. People who have chosen that will not experience the first resurrection. That's crystal clear. We know that. But they will experience, unfortunately, the second death, which is the lake of fire. Third thing we know for sure from this passage is crystal clear. All believers, all believers, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're going to share in the first resurrection. And you're going to reign as priests of Christ. And don't think priest, you know, fancy clothes. Think priest, I'm a representative, I'm an ambassador of Christ. You're going to reign as an ambassador or priest of Christ, and you're gonna share in this first resurrection. Now, I, I wanna get super down to earth for just a second, because it's one thing in a setting like this where you know th- this is a one-way communication, but tomorrow morning you're in a coffee shop and you start talking to somebody, it's all of a sudden a two-way communication. And I've had a lot of conversations about the book of Revelation with people in the last few months. And one of the most common questions I get is, Steve, what's your position on the millennium? And sometimes the, the, answer, the, uh, the question comes with a little bit of, Steve, what is your position on the millennium? Like, and they want me to agree with whatever their position is. So sometimes a little timid. Sometimes the question comes with a lot of technical language. Say, Steve, are you on-mill or pre-mill or post-mill? And as soon as I said that, and if you go, I have no idea what he's talking about, I just want to say glory to Jesus. <laughs> because I think those words and those camps just confuse the issue and cause us to be divisive, and we don't want to be divisive. So if I had these slides that uh, we're just up there, if I had those points with me in a coffee shop, I would just put those up. This is my position. God is the almighty one. Satan is always under his rule. Unbelievers who reject Christ, unfortunately, they're going to be joining Satan and, and the demons in the lake of fire. And for us who are believers, we're victorious in Christ because of the cross, and we'll share in the resurrection, reigning as priests of Christ. That's my position. So in my opinion, we could do one of two things, church. We can get sucked into an unsolvable debate, trying to touch the butterfly when we can't, or we could just take a good solid summary where there's unity and then move on. And speaking of moving on, we're gonna do that right now. How about verse seven? Chapter 20, verse seven. And I like the way it starts. When the thousand years are over. Okay, so the millennium's over. That's where we're at in the vision. The millennium is over. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and he will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet have been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And we're not gonna spend a ton of time on this short section because I wanna save most of our time for the end of chapter 20. But there are three things I would like you to just notice in this section and then you can listen to the podcast for more detail. But first thing to notice is um, Satan after the thousand years in the abyss. 
Question for you. Has, has he been rehabilitated? No. What's the first thing he does? He goes out and starts deceiving again. Why? Because that's who Satan is. He is evil and he will always want to deceive God's people. And he gathers the evil nations for a battle against God. Pretty, pretty arrogant, but that's what he does. And did you notice what happens with this battle? There wasn't actually a battle. Jose talked about that last week with chapter 19. It, the battle was literally over before it started. They gather and God destroys the evil nations with fire, which is a symbol of righteous judgment. And it's over. Satan joins the beast and the false prophet in the lake of fire. And Satan's no more. He's gone. Third and most important, I think, is in verse 9. This is kind of a cool foreshadowing of next week when we talk about the new Jerusalem, the new city. John describes God's people. He, he describes God's people as a city he loves. That's, that's a cool image. God's people are going to gather together in a city and we're going to live together. We're going to be a family, one big giant family and one big giant beautiful city that's also going to have garden-like characteristics. Okay, now the last section of Revelation 20, 11 through 15, uh, when we first read this, it's going to sound a, a little bit challenging, but I think this one's actually going to be a little bit more clear for us as we unpack it. Look at verse 11. It says, then I saw a great white throne and whom who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before the throne and books, notice they're plural, books were open. And then another book, this is a different book and it's one singular book. Another book was open, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books, plural. Then 13, the sea gave up the dead that were in it and the death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them and each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. We already know that. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown in the lake of fire. So John's vision in this chapter continues in the throne room and he sees God or Jesus or maybe both seated on the throne. It doesn't actually say who's seated on the throne, but it, I don't think it really matters that much. It's either God or it's Jesus or both. And throughout the book of Revelation, we often see both God and the lamb on the throne together. So either way, it's God or God's son or both seated on the throne. So this is a real picture of absolute total authority and books plural were opened and then another book singular called the book of life was open so we want to talk about that books and the book and there's some old testament background and historical context that are really going to help us out to understand this so both of the references to the books plural and the book singular come out of daniel like so many things in Revelation. The first one, the books, is from Daniel chapter 7. And it's describing one of Daniel's visions. And the way the vision goes, you don't need to turn there, but the way the vision goes, it says, God Almighty, the Ancient of Days, is on his throne, and books were opened before him. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? It's pretty much the same scene. 
Now, once again, the scholars help us out. Grant Osborne tells us this about the historical context. He says, in Jewish writings, and by that he means the Hebrew Bible and extra biblical Jewish writings, in Jewish writings, these were, these were books recording the deeds of both the righteous and the unrighteous. The good and the bad, the believers, the unbelievers, the saved and the saved. There's books that record these different deeds. And this is what I want you to get today. If you, if you don't understand anything about the millennium or the millennium falcon, Jose, if you don't understand any of that stuff, get this. Don't miss this. This is a big, gigantic, huge, can't be missed theme, not only in the book of Revelation, but the entire Bible. We can't miss it. And more importantly, we can't misunderstand it because our Jewish friends, and I have lots of Jewish friends, they're misunderstanding in our our viewpoint as Christian Orthodox followers of Jesus, we don't understand this the way our Jewish friends do. Because the Jewish misunderstanding, we think, is that the books, plural, were what is called the treasure of merits. And it was like a weight, a scale. You have your good deeds on this side and your bad deeds on this side. And at the end of your life, on the day of judgment, you put your good deeds and your bad deeds on the scale. And if it tipped to the good, all right, you're in the kingdom of heaven. And if it took to the bad, you're not. And Orthodox Christianity, follower of Jesus, we say no to that. We say, no, that's not the message of the Bible because you've probably heard this if you've been in church more than a day or two. Our salvation is not based on our works and how they weigh out. Our salvation is based on the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's a free gift. So we cannot misunderstand that. Our salvation 100% based on the grace of Jesus Christ. By grace you've been saved through faith and it's a free gift. We cannot misunderstand that. But we can't just stop there. I'm gonna put up a slide. It's a summary of this, this theology, if you will. Judgment on judgment day is not only for unbelievers. Judgment is not only for unbelievers. Judge, uh, believers, as I said, are saved by grace yet we'll still be judged for our deeds. And some of you now, I, could, I can't see your faces because of the mask, but I can see your eyes. And some of you are going, oh no, I don't like this. You see, for unbelievers, final judgment is removal from God's presence. But you become a believer and you go, oh, this is good. I'll be in God's presence. Salvation is hugely important, hugely key. Again, God's grace, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, believers, 100% assurance of salvation. Romans 8.1 says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But friends, we can't stop there. There's more to this story. See, at final judgment, believers are held accountable and judged for our deeds, both the good and the bad. And I know for some of you, it's like, ah, this isn't the message I wanted to hear today because you have bad deeds and I have bad deeds. So what happens to them? I thought they didn't matter. Has, has Satan deceived you into thinking that what you do in this life, your good deeds or your bad deeds don't matter? Well, they do. The book of Revelation in chapter two and three started out with Jesus writing letters to the seven churches. And do you remember what he said in virtually every letter? I know your deeds. Deeds are important to Jesus. He knows your deeds and he lists them out in the letters to the, to the churches. Here's your good deeds and here's your bad 
deeds. And in Revelation, this is not a new concept. It's all over the New Testament. A couple of verses for you to, to look at. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due for the things done while in the body, that's in this body, in this life. And notice what it says, whether good or bad. Our good deeds and our bad deeds both matter. And then Romans 14, 12 says, so then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. So this, this might be startling news for you that you go, oh no, I thought I was just totally cool because I'm saved and I'm gonna be spend, spend an eternity with Jesus. And that's a great and wonderful thing. It is, but don't stop there. Your good deeds and your bad deeds are going to matter. Here's our confusion or here's our stumbling block. We understand salvation because we really, really talk about it a lot. And it's a good thing. And our, our, deeds, do, excuse me, our deeds do not save us. But what about the deeds of a believer? Have you ever like, wondered about what happens to all this? In what way are we held accountable? It says we are. It's pretty clear in all these verses. Well, unfortunately, this is another time where we can't touch the butterfly. The Bible doesn't completely tell us exactly how our deeds matter. But there is this fabulous passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We're not going to turn there for time. But in your community groups this week, that's going to be the main passage of discussion. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And I'll just summarize. There's a, there's a, a passage there. Paul is using a metaphor. And he's speaking to believers. And he's talking about a believer's works or deeds that are made out of stuff that lasts into eternity and stuff that doesn't last to eternity. The stuff that doesn't last gets burned up. So he, here's my best guess of what the Bible does say about our good deeds and bad deeds. We know they matter. We've already kind of proven that. But what happens? Well, I believe out of that passage that a believer's bad deeds are burned up and the good deeds actually remain and are rewarded. See, I think when, when I die, unfortunately, I've done some bad deeds. Now, Jesus paid the, the price for those sins. That doesn't change my destination to heaven. But what about these bad deeds? Well, there, I think there's just metaphorically this little burn pile and they get burned up. And the good deeds remain. And Jesus himself talks about this in Matthew, the gospel of Matthew chapter 16, verse 27. These are the words of Jesus himself speaking about himself. Check this out. He says, for the son of man is going to come in his father's glory with his angels. And then he will reward each person. And look what the reward is for. According to what they have done. You could substitute in there according to their good works, according to their good deeds. Jesus is coming back not only to save us, but to reward us. This should excite you. This should encourage you. This should make this week coming ahead be, be motivated by you going out and going, what good deed could I do? Because it's gonna, I'm going to get an extra reward from Jesus. Now, that can't be the motivation because the, we'll see in a second that what happens, why do we do these good deeds? It's for the glory of the Father. But nevertheless, we'll be rewarded. And because of this, we should live with hope. And I'm gonna ask another question about deception from the devil. Are you sitting here today in a little bit in fear of the day of judgment? Because it says we're gonna be judged according to our deeds. Has Satan deceived you to the point of fear that when you meet Jesus, he's gonna be all sorts of angry about your burn pile? We all have a little burn pile 
but it's going to burn up. Jesus is going to welcome you into heaven with open loving arms and saying, live with me in the new city of Jerusalem forever and ever. And by the way, here's a pile of rewards for all the good that you've done. Now, I've been saying this and you all have a different vision or thought of, well, he must be talking about big goods like Luis Palau, who preached the gospel to millions, or the people who started the orphanages in Africa. That's the good deeds that Jesus is going to reward. And that's not the message of the Bible. Any good work done in Jesus' name will be rewarded. There's a lot of parents here today. I love seeing all the kids. I'm really, frankly, I'm going to miss when we have all the kids back in the classroom because I love watching the kids run around. And, you know, it doesn't bother me. I know it bothers you parents. You're like, oh, be quiet, be quiet. But uh, the first 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 uh, service at nine o'clock I met little Lena and she's just this wonderful thing but she's 10 months and her parents are just they're just tired right? you know, 10 month old baby you know what that's like if you've had one or uh, I met Jolice earlier before this gathering she's five years old and her parents aren't as tired but they're trying to figure out how do we raise this child who has her own opinions now and gets into more trouble now and shakes on his head going yeah parents listen to this raising your kid is all the good deeds you need to do this week. That's enough work. And Jesus, and the rest of us, by the way, are gonna thank you for raising your kids well, right? In, in our family, we want the kids to love Jesus. We wanna raise them to love Jesus. We wanna raise them to be good citizens. And if you don't have kids, if you're single, if you're young, don't think of these good deeds as these mighty things. Now, if God calls you to do a big, mighty thing, go do it. But in the meantime, if you're just a normal, whatever that is, worker bee, your good deed is being the best employer at work that you could ever be. Because when people see your good deeds, it's going to give glory to the Father in heaven. So no matter what you do, a kind word, a, just a nice note, you, you could be in hospice and do good deeds. It was amazing. My, when my mom was in hospice, she was talking to the other people in her facility that were in hospice about Jesus. Do you think that's going to be rewarded when she sees him? I think so. And her little burn pile of bad deeds aren't going to be an issue. Let's look at what the end of Revelation says about this. I'm going to steal a little bit of Jose's thunder when he gets to Revelation 22. But 22.12 says this. Again, Jesus himself speaking. Look, I'm coming soon. And my reward is with me. And here it is again. I'm going to give to each person according to what they have done. He's coming back with rewards. Be motivated. Now, there's another book in this chapter, this book singular, that we'll spend just a second or two on. John calls it the book of life. And this book is a special book. It's reserved for believers only. The Old Testament reference is Daniel chapter 12. And speaking of that day, it says everyone whose name is found written in the book will be delivered or saved. Alan Johnson, who's a former professor at Wheaton College, says this about how cities recorded names in books. He says in ancient cities, the names of citizens were recorded and are registered until their death. And then their names were marked out of the book of the living. So that's the way it worked in ancient cities. And John's using that, the Bible uses that language about the book of life to refer of a special unique book. But the city is the new city, the new holy city, the new Jerusalem. And what's unique about 
the new holy city, the new Jerusalem that we'll talk about next week, is citizens of that city never die. They never die. You're with Jesus forever in that city. So there's no crossing out of names in that book. And one of the things that's really cool about this book of life is in chapter 22 and even back in chapter 13, John uses the full title of this book. You see, it's not just called the book of life. It's called the Lamb's book of life. And that should give you goosebumps if you're really understanding what this means. See, because the book of life is the Lamb's book of life, that means it's Jesus's book of life. And for you and me to have our name in that book of life requires one final sacrifice by the king of kings who became a lamb. And he was sacrificed for the entire world. And only those whose names that are written in the lamb's book of life, in Jesus' book of life, will live in the new Jerusalem with him for eternity. And for that to happen, we need to say, yes, Jesus, I want to follow you. So chapter 20 is a bit dense, would you agree? I mean, I, you just got, I, want, I cannot wait to meet John in heaven and just say, tell me about those visions again. I want to hear the long story. And sometimes I wish Revelation wasn't only 22 chapters. I wish it was 100 because I just want to know more. But sometimes we can't know more. Sometimes we can't touch the butterfly. We know six verses on the millennium. Take it, move on. We read about how Satan... Death, Hades, they're in the lake of fire, no more. And then we read about these books and how our, our, our life is going to matter. We're going to give an account and it's going to last into eternity. So what are some things we could take this week into your community group discussions? Or if you're not in a community group, well, you can discuss with your family or just on your own. What are a couple takeaways that are really super practical? I think out of this very dense chapter, there's uh, a, a few things. Here's the first one. All beasts, all beasts are temporary rulers. The kingdom of God will last forever and ever and ever. Amen, right? So we don't have to worry too much about these beasts. It's going to be painful for a while when the beasts rule our life. For the first century Christians, it was Rome. It was horrific. It was horrible. But Rome's gone. And every other beast that follows after Rome is going to be gone. But don't miss this. Good deeds matter to Jesus. So they should matter to us, right? I, whatever matters to Jesus, I want it to matter to me. And good deeds seem to really matter to him. They, he talks about them a lot. So I want to focus on them a lot. Not the deception of, of, of Satan that talks that wants you to focus on your bad deeds. Your motivation is to keep that pile really small and just build up the big good deed piles. Because whenever you're doing bad deeds, you don't have time to do the good deeds because you're in the muck, you're in the garbage dump. Well, get it out of that. Let's bring back the do-gooders, right? Let's do good in any way, shape, or form. Small things, medium things, big things, and do it for the glory of God. And then the last thing that we have to end with today is a simple question, but it's so important. Is your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life? That's critical. And I'm really excited to hear out of Revelation 21 next week because we're going to find out just how glorious that new city is and what it's going to be like. And we're going to get some of John's visions about what it's like. But you don't get to live there unless your name's in the Lamb Book of Life. So I'm going to ask the band to come on up and come forward. And I'm going to finish with one other verse. You can close up your Bibles, close your thoughts. And just be thinking right now, 
what good deed am I going to do this week? Maybe you are being called to start an orphanage somewhere. I don't know. Maybe you're called to become a foster parent. It's a big, costly deed, if you will. Or maybe it's just a little thing. Maybe it's someone you haven't seen for a while, and you just want to grab coffee with them because you miss them because of the situation we're in with the pandemic. Whatever deed it is, do it for the glory of God. And I'm not just making that up. That's not just the churchy thing to say. That's what Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 16. Here's what Jesus tells his disciples. He says this, let your light shine before others. Now, you have to be careful there. Obviously, Jesus talks against pride. So you don't want to light your light shine before others in a prideful way. You want to do it in a humble way. We let our light shine before others in a humble way. And then Jesus goes on to say that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. That's what we should do this week. We should be the best employees, people that know are Christians, should be the best employees, the best parents, the best you fill in the blank, not for our pride, but for the glory of our Father in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this amazing, hopeful, encouraging message out of Revelation chapter 20, that you're coming back and your rewards are with us. May it motivate us to do good for your glory. And all God's people said, amen.